0: You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where every episode I'll dive deep into the creative minds of your new favorite songwriters, band leaders, and sonic explorers who, like me, have dedicated their lives to traveling the world, telling their strange stories to anyone who'll listen. My name is Zach Lupertin. Let's go. This week on the show, I want us to go back in time to a sweet, innocent era in American history we will call February 2020. It's there, on the scratchy rug of a Holiday Inn Express, that I taped one of my last face-to-face conversations before the pandemic shut us down, with a living folk blues legend, song collector, violin collector, and shaggy-haired guitar icon, David Bromberg. Before I started really paying attention, Romberg was just one of those dusty, mysterious names I read about in dog-eared history books of the fertile folk scene in Greenwich Village in the early 60s, and actually, he's part of the next wave who emerged out of that quirky forge after Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Ramblin' Jack Elliott and other troubadour storytellers became national heroes. But unlike some of those icons, Bromberg preferred to stay in the shadows a bit. He was a bit harder to pin down and pigeonhole. His nerdy, encyclopedic knowledge of American songwriting traditions made him a coffeehouse wunderkind, but he refused to write and perform in any one genre, even as he began recording beloved but underselling albums for Columbia Records. If there was one North Star guiding him all along, maybe it was the gospel blues and guitar-driven roots of Southern luminaries like Doc Watson and Reverend Gary Davis, who taught a curious young Bromberg as he was dropping out of Columbia University. After that, it was off to the races, and at 30, he was a go-to guitarist for Dylan, Willie Nelson, John Prine, and Ringo Starr, and he could be found jamming at Thanksgiving with George Harrison and picking songs for Linda Ronstadt to make into hits. Well, of course, he probably has the ego of a fleet-fingered frontman. Bromberg struck me as someone who, deep down, doesn't really want to be the star attraction. He wants the songs to speak for him, whether it's the reimagined romps he creates of obscure Leadbelly tunes or his own sly-eyed, crack-voiced rock and blues, which he changes each time he tries them out. Do you ever sit in front of someone who's a little older than you, or maybe a lot older than you, and say, you know what, that's who I want to be when I grow up. That's kind of how I felt talking to Dave Bromberg. At 74 years young, he is just as passionate about playing his music now as ever before. And you know what? He exudes this I-don't-give-an-F energy that I really, really want to have at that age. And back in that earlier era when I talked to him, when baseball spring training was going blissfully ahead in Arizona, as China and Italy began to lose a generation of its citizens to a new kind of plague, I was so thankful I could talk to him face-to-face right before he got to play LA's El Rey Theater. And hold on for a second. When's the last time you really talked to someone face-to-face? No masks, real close, looking into someone's eyes and asking them everything that you want to know about them. And you can tell Dave gets a little salty when I ask him some personal questions, but you know what? I would not have had the courage to do that over the phone. There was something about the intimacy of us being in his hotel room face-to-face that gave me the courage to dive deep. I do wonder if our conversations with strangers will change after this weird time. I realized today as I was walking to the store that when I look at someone who I don't know I want to ask them where they're from, what they're feeling what they've been doing these last four months but then I don't. I go within myself and I wonder, would I want someone to ask me how I'm feeling? It's like we're all kind of exposed even though we're all covered up we're deeply vulnerable and we don't know how to talk about it I know I don't a friend actually asked me What are your plans for the rest of the year? And I didn't know. It's like this deep void is spread before me. The thing I love to do, make music, tour the world, eat new things, see new people, it could be a thing of the past, or we just have to be very patient. Have you been daydreaming through this crazy heat wave of new careers that maybe you could start overnight? So everybody's baking really good sourdough bread right now, and I had this thought, That what if I took everyone's sourdough, and I sliced it up, toasted it, had a little cart that went down by the beach, and sold really good toast with really good things on it? Is that crazy? Probably. But maybe it could work? Can you tell I haven't had dinner yet? Anyway, I'm sorry I couldn't get this episode out sooner, But uh, Dave Bromberg's newest genre-bending release is called Big Road. It just came out this year, and it pays homage to his heroes like Charlie Rich and bluesman Tommy Johnson, but also injects heavy doses of swampy rock, horn-heavy funk, and good-humored folk along the way. Maybe I've said this before, but I'm always so thankful I can talk to these elder statesmen before they leave us for good. A guy like Dave Bromberg... He's the connective tissue between all the music that I've ever loved. And make sure you listen to the whole episode, because at the very end, he plays a brand new acoustic tune called Buddy Brown's Blues. That's it for me, guys. Make sure, as always, you donate to your favorite bands as they're out of work at Dust Bowl Revival on Venmo. Send us anything. Maybe we'll take it to the track and double our money. Or go to DustbowlRevival.com to get a new t-shirt or a new vinyl. Apologize for any blips and bloops you might hear, or people mowing the lawn or shouting outside my window. I do my best here, stuck at home. Of course, if you love this podcast and all the crazy music that we bring you, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Share it with a friend and leave us a review. It would mean a lot. Okay, without further ado, here he is now, the young at heart, David Bromberg. I've
1: got an outside woman, and boy, she's tight like that. I used to see her six times a week just to feed her cat. You don't believe I love you, darling. Look what a fool I've been. You don't believe that I'm sinking. Look at this boy.
0: us who you are and what you did on that long flight from philadelphia
1: <laughs> well i'm david bromberg and i uh i was uh reading a, a novel called new york which is basically historical fiction following a family through the history of uh, new york city
0: i was talking to my dad back in chicago on uh, the way here stuck in traffic and he's a big fan of yours you know oh, from back in nice. the day and he was amazed that you grew up mostly in Terrytown, and he was in Ossining. You know, a lot of my family's in Ossining. We just played a, a festival in Irvington.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And uh, it's amazing how many folks came from that little Westchester area. I talked to Dar Williams recently, too, uh-huh. was from that same place. Um, do you think living so close to the city but not right in the thick of it kind of gave you this impetus to go into New York and, and seek out your fame and fortune? As a young
1: man? Um, No, um, but I'll tell you what. I I went to Columbia University uh, for about a year and a half. And uh, what I discovered was no matter what your interest is, in New York City, you can find a whole bunch of people with the same interest. Right. It can be axe murdering, <laughs> yeah. but whatever it is, right. there's a bunch more people in New York. And um, I, I didn't meet a whole lot of people uh, in Tarrytown who were interested in what I was interested in or the music I was interested in. So finding that in New York really, really got me enthusiastic about the city. But how does a guy like you,
0: yeah, growing up in the suburbs, you know, obviously you're a white guy, but you grew up, I think, really into a lot of black blues artists, and you befriended them, and you sort of embodied a lot of that music throughout the decades and today, you know? Mm -hmm. Where do you think that spark came from? What was the first thing that hit
1: you? Oh, man. Uh, I just heard the music, and it spoke to me, and I was very lucky because... um, my brother uh, was in a, cl- uh, in my brother's class in high school was a guy named Kim Deitch. Uh, he, he was, a, a, his father had been, uh, he did uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons. He was a right. cartoonist. And Kim did some of the uh, head comics. Okay, but uh the point of this is that uh, Kim's dad had a fantastic collection of blue 78s, mm. and uh, they let me come over on weekends and tape them. That's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome.
0: See, they they mock the young kids these days for streaming and and taking music for free from uh, a lot of artists. and you know, when I was in college, we would use lime wire and all these things to steal music off the internet when uh-huh. it became this new thing but weren't we always kind of doing that in a way i mean when i was a young kid i was i was literally recording on cassettes from the radio so i could have it in my own house it's like there's always that well, need to take
1: so you never bought a record never and bought a cd
0: i did but i'm saying is that there's always more than that to, going on
1: today nobody buys cds it's true maybe it's, we did both more back yeah, then. yeah it's it's a different thing today yeah.
0: Do you think that your music now as an elder statesman in the sort of folk roots rock and roll community has the same um, passion to it as when you were a young man? Do you feel the same fire as as
1: when you were in Greenwich Village in the 60s? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know one way or the other. I should have warned you before the interview. I cannot answer overview questions. Yeah, I'm too busy looking at the trees to see the forest. Right. And I like looking at the trees rather than the forest.
0: Let's get a little more specific then, uh, because your new record, uh, Big Road, it really spans a huge um, arc of, of American music.
1: My records were always like that. Okay. They, go- they weren't anything like anybody's golden age or anybody else's records. Okay. Uh, uh, these days, there are some people who do something similar or, you know, not exactly the same, but, uh, you know, there's there's more of uh, uh, people doing that. But believe me, when, when I w- was playing in the 70s, which was my era before I got burnt out, um, nobody was doing anything like what I was doing. And I always figured if what I'm doing ever becomes popular, I got a corner on the market.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what would you describe... As the thing you were doing, that was,
1: I was playing every type of American music I wanted to play, right? Which was pretty much every type of American music.
0: <laughs> and that's what I admire about you because I try to do a similar thing in my band Dust Bowl Revival. And I think people sometimes scratch their heads and go, "Well, how do we describe you? Are you a, a oh. funk, folk, rock and roll, orchestral, you know, diorama of of historical people, American music?" That
1: was a huge commercial problem for right. me. Because the the record companies not only didn't know what radio stations to try and get me on, right? But the but the record uh, stores didn't know what bin to put me in, right? And the record companies didn't know what magazines to advertise me in. Right. That I, I did too many things for to, to make it simple to be promoted, and so it was. Uh, uh, where comp- did they where did they
0: put you at first in the seventies? In focus under music? the bees. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well that, that's a good place to be. I,
1: I, I have to tell you that uh, uh, for generations I've been avoiding being called a folk mu- uh, musician. Yeah. I do some folk music, right but I do some rock and roll, right. I, I did a lot of Dixieland, right. I, I do uh, fiddle tunes, right uh, you know so the, the reason that I've one of the reasons I've avoided is because um, if you think about it, and you want to define folk music. I would define folk music as music. And you have to think about this because it's re- it's funny, but it's really true. Right. Folk music is music that's played in a situation or either has been played or is being played in a situation where there's no chance of money changing hands. Okay. Well, think about any folk song you know.
0: Or it's something that maybe is almost part of the fabric of the society like it's just No sort it's of...
1: just it's just music that that was was done in 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 a situation where money wasn't going to change hands. Okay. And then today there's something they call Americana which didn't exist when I was right. coming up. And that stuff sounds a little bit like folk music but it's done for commercial intent. That's that's done where there's always a chance of money right. changing hands.
0: Well I've been able to talk to some folks on this show, uh, like Peter Rowan, who Mm -hmm. loves spanning a huge amount of genres. He did Hawaiian music, he has a reggae album, he has uh, Mexican uh, folk music, he has rock and roll, he has bluegrass, which he's more known for. And there's this constant pigeonholing that goes on in the industry where people want to say, this guy is a folk musician, this guy is a bluegrass singer, right? And there's these two songs on your new record, "Standing in the Need of Prayer" and "Take This Hammer," Mm -hmm. that feel like it goes back to almost like the heart, the beginning of a lot of this music, which is gospel music, you know. And I had the opportunity of being on this stage in Denmark a couple years ago with the Blind Boys of Alabama. Oh boy! And they it reminded me of those songs that they sang, these sort of call and response, percussive. Like, it's coming out of your body and your soul at the same time, you know? And Standing in the Need of Prayer has this just clap and call and response part. Tell me about that song specifically.
1: Standing in the Need of Prayer is uh, a gospel tune of a sort that I uh, haven't done a whole lot of because it's from the white church. Mm. And most of my experience has been in black church. Mm. Uh, it was uh, Mark Cosgrove, who plays in my band, he plays uh, guitar and uh, mandolin, who suggested that we do it. And I arranged it. And I, I thought it was a great idea. And we have a lot of fun with it. Audiences love it. Well,
0: it's, it's really an uplifting, but also just visceral experience listening to it. it ain't
1: the it's church. Oh, oh, yeah, it's me. Oh, yeah, it's me, it's
0: me, me, oh Lord, me, oh Lord, standing in the need
1: of prayer. Oh uh, yeah, uh, that's me, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing
0: in the need of
1: prayer. But now Take This Hammer is completely different. Take This Hammer is, uh, we kind of bluegrassed an old... Uh, 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 Leadbelly too. Mm. That's lead belly. Mm. and it's uh, uh, we whitened a black song. I guess is, is what we'd have to confess. To. Take this hammer, cut to the captain. Take this hammer, cut to the captain. Take this hammer, cut to the captain. Tell him I'm gone. Tell him I'm gone. If he asks you. Was I running, if he asked you, was I running, if he asked you, was I running, tell him I was flying, tell him I was flying.
0: Do you find that you would like to consider yourself more of a, an archivist and a, a collector of songs versus a songwriter performer or is it all part of what you do?
1: I don't consider myself, period. (laughs) Okay.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. When you get out on stage and you're playing the El Rey in a few days, uh, or is it tomorrow? Tomorrow. Tomorrow here in L.A. What is the first thing that you think when you get on stage in front of a packed audience? Oh, this is going to be fun.
1: (laughs) Uh, I I love playing with the guys I'm playing with. And yeah. we we have a ball. It feels that the energy
0: is so deep within you, you know? And I can see you're having fun. And I can tell sometimes, and it's sad, sometimes folks who had whatever heydays, hits, et cetera, in the 60s, 70s, and they're sort of out in this nostalgia uh, tour. Uh-huh. You could see this sort of deadness in the, in the air.
1: Well, that's why I stopped performing for 22 years. I, I found myself one night, you know, I've never had a set list. I think of what I want to do next as each song ends. And I found myself one night in a concert in New Jersey, not being able to decide what to do next because I didn't want to do anything. Mm. And that's when I decided I have to stop. Uh, my career was doing great. I mean, I was really going in a good, in in the right direction where you want to do it, but the reason it was doing so well is that I was working like a son of a bitch. How many days a year do you think you were touring? Oh, I don't know. I was pretty much constantly on the road, and it was too much. Yeah, and I didn't want to be. I thought about it because I'd come off the road and I wasn't practicing. I wasn't uh, uh, jamming, I wasn't writing, I wasn't doing anything a musician does. So I started to doubt that I was a musician. It never occurred to me that I was burnt out. I always thought I could never burn out. So I decided I didn't want to be one of these guys who drags his ass on stage and does a bitter imitation of what he used to love. And there are people who do that. And I just didn't ever want to do it. So I stopped. This is when mid-80s? No, this was uh, uh, just about 1980,
0: 79 or 80. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a very powerful thing that, to realize. There was
1: a little bit more to it. Uh, that was the main thing, but also uh, the fiddler in my band got run over by a truck. And uh, that hurt. Mm. It hurt a lot. You felt like the sound had lost something. No, I felt like I lost a good friend.
0: Yeah. Was he on a lot of your previous records?
1: Yeah, at that point, yeah. Yeah,
0: that must have been really tough.
1: It was tough.
0: How do you find new band members now? Is it all word of mouth or old friends?
1: The guys who who play with me, they're in for a long time, all of them. Mm. The most recent member of my band, I think, is... Been playing with us for about three years, but he's the most recent guy. I found him because uh, I'm talking about the, our bass player Swavik Sanyshenko. Mm. Uh, I I had to look for a new bass player. I've been playing with Butch uh, Amy for 30 40 years. Mm. <laughs> that's a long time to have a relationship. <laughs> that's that's how it works with me. That's yeah. that's very loyal. Well, I I like the guys, and we get something, you know. And and there's there's a uh, there's a communication. The, the, uh, the morale of this particular band is is fantastic. We're all ha- very happy to be playing with each other. Mm. And one of the things that occurs to me as, as you and I are talking is you're, you're talking about me as though I'm the one who's doing everything. Uh, I'm. It reminds me... I'm not the one who's doing everything. I don't know if you ever heard... Uh, the Mel Brooks, uh, uh, Carl Reiner record, The 2,000-Year-Old Man, mm. but there's one track on it called The Folk Singer. Mm. And uh, Carl Reiner is interviewing Mel Brooks, and, and and he said, well, I don't remember what the question is, but what Brooks said is, we're all singing. I'm just the mouth. Mm-hmm. The best thing to do with other musicians is try and create circumstances where they can do what they do best. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know there are other performers, some of them friends of mine, who don't get it, mm-hmm. and who don't want anybody to be paying attention to the other people in their band. Right. This, to me, that's not bright. I, I, I although I'm t- I'm thinking specifically of one guy who's very bright, but he he just doesn't doesn't, you know he thinks everyone's always looking at him, and uh, that may be he's got it structured that way, and boy.
0: <laughs> you don't want to tell me who this is? No, I don't. Okay. Do you feel like your uh, your record, Try Me One More Time, uh, the 2006 record that was nominated for a Grammy, was that the seed to a whole sort of second wind, third wind, fourth wind, whatever you call this this new no, energy that you have?
1: No, I started performing again a little bit. And uh, I was in uh, Austin, Texas at a little coffee house, the Cactus Cafe, And uh, uh, I was playing, uh, also on the bill were, uh, I'm going to have a hard time. You know I'm getting old and stupid. (laughs) I'm having a hard time with names. Uh, um, Wonderful mandolin player, singer, songwriter who was in The Birds. Uh, Chris Hillman and this wonderful singer who's on a million records that he works with. Uh, And I feel so dumb I can't come up with his name. Anyhow, we were sitting around the dressing room, and we were talking about stuff, and I, uh, uh, we were talking about how we started. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know, that I had studied with Reverend Gary Davis, and they mm-hmm. said, can you play any of that? I said, I don't know. I haven't tried for years. Mm-hmm. But my hands remembered a good bit of it, mm-hmm. and they said, well, you should be doing that, and I thought about it. And, you know, back in the 70s, I, I didn't do that stuff. The Reverend was alive. He could do it much better than, uh, than mm-hmm. I could. Um, so, but now I'm one of the few people who had contact with him, learned directly from him. How did you guys meet? Uh, we met in Greenwich Village. Uh, I was walking down the street one day. I'd heard his records, or I heard a record of his. And there was a, a sandwich sign. It was in an afternoon. Must have been a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. In front of a, a, a club called the Dragon's Den, which didn't exist long after that. It, uh, I mean... In a short time after that, it, it, it folded. But there was a sandwich sign at said, Reverend Gary Davis, this afternoon. So I went in and paid my money and uh, sat down. Uh, I was, at the time, going to Columbia University and uh, uh, heard the Reverend, and it was incredible. And I screwed up my courage afterwards, and I asked him if he'd give me guitar lessons. <laughs> uh, and to my surprise, he said, yes, yeah. Was but, he living in New York? Oh yes, he was living in a, uh, at that point. He was living in the Bronx, hmm. uh, uh, in a in a shack mm-hmm. in between two high rises. Wow! And uh, he said, "Yes, you know, five dollars. Bring the money, honey." That was the Reverend. Five dollars. Five dollars. Pretty I good deal. I didn't pay him five dollars for very long.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, after a little while, instead of paying him money, I would be his uh, seeing eye dog because the Reverend was blind. Right. And I would take him to concerts or to church more often. Hmm. They don't have no mercy in the land They don't have no mercy in the land You come to your house and it won't stay long You look in the bed
0: and somebody be gone They don't have no mercy well, that kind of friendship that and that sort of kinship that you had with a, a much older musician that had a completely different upbringing and, and, and sort of sense of place where his music came from, do you feel like it, he was almost like a way into a whole different life in a way I mean was he the spark that made you drop from I, I Columbia just,
1: I just don't think of things in that way <laughs> so I don't know how to answer that
0: what was the thing that made you drop out of Columbia the, the moment the lightning hit your head I have to do music
1: um I was in a situation uh which made me fall apart and I couldn't handle it Or were you studying Oh, I, I, this was my sophomore year. I mean, I was taking all the essential things, except I was taking some piano lessons and a theory course. But, uh, uh, you know, most of it was the humanities and, you know, just just the the general course of things.
0: And you were able to meet up with guys like Doc Watson and... Reverend Gary
1: Davis, well, Mississippi uh, that, John Hurt. I mean, I mean that is an amazing that, that, confluence. That was of, all a you know, little bit after, yeah. Except for the Reverend, I met the Reverend yeah. when I was still in college, and I also uh, got to play with uh, um, at Columbia at the time. There were some wonderful musicians. Uh, uh, you know, the song "Midnight at the Oasis" was written by David Nicturn, who, who became a very close friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He was at he was at Columbia. There's a great uh, bluegrass. Uh, they call him Doctor Banjo. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Pete Wernick mm-hmm. And we played together And uh, you know there was a lot going on But then I discovered uh, Well I'd already discovered Then I started going down to the village I, I dropped out mm-hmm. uh, 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 Well no I took a leave of absence But I don't think they'll take me back <laughs> And uh, <laughs> You can uh, get I, an honorary doctorate if you wanted to <laughs> I doubt it <laughs> But uh, You know I, I, I started spending more and more time in the village What did your parents say? My parents didn't know what to say, I don't think, but a, one of their friends took me aside and said, uh, you know, they may not have told you, but your parents really want you to uh, go back to school, you know, so that y- you, you can have something to fall back on. Uh-huh. And the funny part of that is that, you know, I, I stopped for playing music for, a, for quite a while. And one night I at, uh, at a memorial for another one of the guys in my band who had passed, Um, my uh, manager said, you know, David, the last year you spent more money than you made. Uh, You know, at this point I wasn't performing. He said, but fortunately you have something to fall back on. (laughs) And he was talking about playing music. Yeah. I mean, we have to diversify in the arts. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. What did your folks do? Well, my dad was a psychiatrist. Okay. And my mom was a a very interesting woman. She... uh, um, she had been David Dubinsky's right hand. Okay. Uh, her father. Who's David Dubinsky? David Dubinsky was the head of the uh, Ladies' Garment Union and, okay. and a very important union organizer in New York City. Mm-hmm. And my my grandfather on my mother's side uh, had been a very unusual combination of a poet mm-hmm. and a politician. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had the largest funeral to this day in the history of New York. Wow. Yeah, he was, he was, a, he was quite a guy. Hmm. So uh, she was something very interesting. I tell you a lot of stories, but uh, <laughs> t- uh, she was something. Uh, later in her life, in her mid to late 60s, she decided she wanted to go to law school and did. Wow. Yeah, and, and then she stopped. Uh, because her mom got ill, mm. so she stopped to take care of her mom. She said, "Well, uh, you know what? I, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just wanted to learn it." Mm. And were they supportive of your musical obsessions? I think I think that they were, and at a certain point, they realized that I could make a living, and they became very proud of me. Mm. There's this
0: there's this opening part of uh, the song. Uh, last song for Shelby Jean off this nineteen seventy two. I think it's the self titled record, mm-hmm. where you say "Welcome to the Soul Review," and it's like this false start where you start playing the wrong song, mm-hmm. and then you stop and you go, "Oh well, we have, we're not even playing the right song," and that's how you open the record, which I thought was hilarious, you know. And then you go into completely different song, and I felt like it captured this off-kilter moment in time that the village, I think, maybe had. What was so special about that uh, confluence of energies coming together in in Greenwich Village? I don't know. (laughs) Was it just the right people in the right place at the right time?
1: The only thing I can tell you about Greenwich Village when I was there is that they were saying the same thing then as they're saying now, and I think it's always been said, oh, the village is gone now, man. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> you should have been here ten years ago. Yeah, it's like and it's I like think, Woody
0: Allen's Midnight in Paris. It's
1: like, oh, the twenties were the best. Oh, the eighteen nineties yeah, were the yeah, best. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's the only thing that I can really tell you. But about. But
0: the that. sheer level of talent, and not just in sort of folky glory. I mean, there was if you have guys like Reverend Gary Davis and you and Dylan and uh, Ramblin' well, J- Rambl- Jack Elliott, all these folks that were sort of together under one roof. I mean, that's a ama- that's an amazing thing that I wish I could have seen. There,
1: there was, well, first of all, Bob had uh, graduated from the village when I got there. Dylan had, uh, wasn't, uh, we weren't around at the same time. You know who was around when Dylan was around was Barbara Streisand, hmm. who used to bring a tape recorder a- and play uh, uh, music minus one of Broadway tunes and sing over them. Yeah, sing the tracks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, she was great, so I hear. Yeah. Uh, um, and I believe it, you know, because she's a, a very... T- Bob Dylan turned me on to her. Um, there was a lot of t- talent there, but there was a lot of not much talent there, yeah. too. Well, a lot of people tried. There was this. everything. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the good thing is it was a place to be bad. hmm and, and you need a place to be bad because it teaches you to be better. So, mm-hmm. If you're lucky. I've got a terrible thought in my mind. We said all we've got to say. And that awful hour that you've been searching for, you finally found it yesterday. Now I think you know, babe, it's time to go. Not tomorrow, but today. trying in the past to make the thing last but it only hurts for longer
0: that way How many bad songs until
1: you write a good song, you think? No way
0: back from here. A hundred?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's, a, there's a guy, a, a lovely guy, who lives out here named Jason Flair. And Jason is a tape trader, and he has found more tapes of me than Anybody knew existed, mm-hmm. including one tape where I'm singing my very first song, mm-hmm. and boy, is it awful! Which song was it? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm sorry I said anything about it. I asked him to destroy it, but there's no not a chance. So uh, I th- I I don't think I wrote too many before before I started doing things that were okay.
0: Yeah, I, I wish. I could get in a room with you and John Prine. Well, Prine is wonderful. Because I feel like there's an interesting yin and yang there, you know?
1: Well, we worked together a bit. You know, I yeah. played uh, guitar and mandolin on one of his records. Uh, Diamond in the Rough was the name of it. Mm. And uh, and we did tons of shows together. And he's, he's wonderful.
0: It's funny because my... Uh, one of my friends in this band called Front Country in Nashville, um, really great flat top guitar player.
1: What's his name? Because I think I know this band.
0: Uh, his name is Jacob Groupman. Yes, I know Jacob. Yeah. And Melody. yeah Yeah, yeah. In Front Country, we just played a show with them in Nashville uh-huh. last week, and he's yeah. like, he's like, man, Dave is one of the best blues guitar players I've ever seen in person. He's like, no one even talks about him in that light, you know? <laughs> and there's this really cool. Stomp blues thing in that title track the of their new record Big uh-huh. Road. You know, yeah. what is that vibe? What is that energy in that song that you you know that you were trying to harness?
1: I I just what I felt in it. You know, I I, I really don't know how to answer that. Um, well, Big Road could mean almost. Big Road was a Tommy Johnson tune. Yeah, the guy who did uh, Canned Heat. Right. You know, canned heat's killing me. Yeah. He died of, of drinking Sterno, canned heat. That's Jeez. what killed him. Uh but Big Road was one of his tunes. He was he was a great blues man in the thirties. Big Road for me
0: has this almost spiritual connotation, right? Uh-huh. Where it's the search and the journey, right? And you've gone in and out of music, right? You had what, twenty two years hiatus, yeah. you're making violins. Yeah. And then you're you all of a sudden are back in this yeah. world and the energy, the fire is hotter than it's almost ever been, maybe, mm-hmm. you know. And that's a really powerful thing. That shows that the road Almost you can go off the road and come back on the road, and the road is always there.
1: Well, I think that's almost the literal, the literal meaning of the tune. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, because the first verse is, I ain't going down that big road by myself. Uh, right. Uh, and if I can't carry you, I'm going to carry somebody else. Right. So uh, um, uh, that's a guy, he's not talking about it necessarily about a specific big road in my mind. Right. He's talking about uh, going through life. Yeah. So, But maybe, you know, maybe at one point Tommy Johnson was thinking of a specific large road. I don't know. <laughs> but, but the thing about tunes is, uh, uh, songs, is they are what you find in them. Well, I ain't going down that big road by my... The big road, oh, Can't you hear me talking to you? I ain't going down the big road by myself.
0: What's the song on the new record that you most look forward to playing each night?
1: Um, these it it, it it varies a little bit, but these days it's Who Will the Next Fool Be? Mm. Which was a, a Charlie Rich tune that uh, Bobby Bland did a great recording of.
0: How do you decide to do that song
1: of all of the songs? I just love it.
0: It's been sort of circulating in your For brainwaves? A long time, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I've wanted to do it forever. I just decided it was time.
0: And when you're playing guitar, do you feel there's a different muscle? You're soloing, you're, you're, you're putting your entire being into that instrument. And then you go back to sort of being the narrator of the song. Is it almost... Are there two characters in one that you're the guitar well, singer I, and the singer-interpreter?
1: I, I can... Tell you a little bit about that Because um, I rem- I'll i never forget uh, As long as I live The first concert I ever did Which was in a church on uh, 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 Fifth Street uh, Where they did uh, Concerts You know, the people who did the coffee houses Would do concerts there And somebody gave me a recording of it On a thumb drive Which I haven't had the courage to listen <laughs> to yet But I remember very Clearly that uh, this was my first concert, and uh, I would play a guitar solo, at the end of which I could not find the English language. Mm. And this happened over and over throughout the night. So I'd have to play another chorus, mm. and maybe another, and maybe another. And I had to find a way to bring my head out of the guitar. Mm. I-, I had to see a head uh, eight to twelve bars, and and find English and remember words. That's incredible. Words, but it's literally true, and I'm sure that a lot of musicians can tell you that. Does it still happen? Um, no. It, it. I I found the solution to it, uh, which was to 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 see ahead. Yeah. And and then and then use another part of my brain to find things, and and so it didn't happen. I don't know if it ever happened again. That feeling of when you're really playing like that, yeah. uh, is better than any other feeling on the planet. Yeah. Uh, it's better than sex. It's better than anything. When, when you feel as though you're concentrating so hard, you're not concentrating at all. Right. And all of a sudden, you're not playing. You're being played. The music is coming from o- outside and coming out. And damn, <laughs> it feels good. But that's exactly the same feeling that a basketball player gets when he's hot Mm. or a short order cook. If you ever watch a good short order cook when the (laughs) place, when the joint is jumping, Mm -hmm. man, they're fantastic. And, and I know, although I've never really stopped anybody to talk, I just know that, that they get the same thing. And almost everybody, uh, if you're lucky in your job, when it's, when it's clicking, that's that feeling. And it's, that's why you do the job,
0: that's why you do it. do you think it's coming from a higher power, or do you think it's just your own skill that has been developed for decades and decades? I don't know <laughs> well, because when you feel like almost like you you're f- being played like an instrument yeah. by some sort of yeah you feel
1: like it's coming from somewhere else and coming out your hand or your mouth and uh, and it feels just wonderful
0: who's the most impressive guitar player that you've ever watched in person? Stanley Jordan hmm. Where?
1: Uh, Actually, not in person. Uh, There's a videotape of a concert. uh, And (laughs) I tell people, if you know a good, really good guitar player who's getting a little bit too big for his britches, just show him this video. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there's so many great guitar players, you know. Were you able to ever see guys like Hendrix in their prime? Uh, I did see Hendrix, and um, I think I saw him twice. Uh, The second time I saw him, was on the night that Martin Luther King had been assassinated, oh my God. and there was a concert at a club called Salvation in the village, mm. and he played and he just played blues, mm. and he was wonderful. His blues record is one of my maybe top ten albums of all time. When he got done, it was BB King's turn, and you, you know, Hendrix played some some gorgeous f- phrases, you know, phenomenal technically, just great things, and. Uh, before too long, B.B. hit one note that lasted for two or three minutes. Mm. And that was it. <laughs> That's all you needed to hear. He was looking for it. Jimmy was looking for yeah. it. B.B. flat found it. <laughs> there it was.
0: They were on a show together? Yeah. Man. That's just That just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> it was probably $5 to go in and see that show. No, it was free. I was this was Grant. this
1: was in because Martin Luther yeah. King had been murdered yeah
0: there feels like there were so many things in the late 60s, especially you know where people that were changing the world were being picked off one by one.
1: yeah yeah that's true.
0: Did you feel like something had broken in the country at that point that could never <laughs> be fixed?
1: This is another old because there was so question. much
0: there was so much optimism coming out of the sixties. I don't know how to explain this to you. I wasn't there. Yeah, bring me, bring me into that. No, time. no.
1: My problem is that that I just don't think in this way. Yeah, I can't think in this way.
0: Who do you think symbolizes the music of your youth in your mind? That sort of inspired you most. There's too many.
1: Ray Charles and uh, Bill Monroe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. What what am I gonna say? There were just so many. Music is so wonderful. Yeah. And I find it emotionally moving, and um, which is the important thing about music, you know. Uh, if I don't, if it's not soulful to me, I haven't got time for it. And there's so much music that does move me. Right. And that's the purpose of music. And to the extent that it that it moves you, it's good. You know, and I don't care what anybody else says about it. You know, I've heard a lot of people... I remember when it was very popular to put down Britney Spears. Yeah. Well, I'm not especially a, a, a Britney Spears fan, but I've got to respect her. You know, she's doing something right. Mm. Uh, Taylor Swift is doing a lot of things right. right. Beyonce is doing a lot of things right. And, you know, people like to put down the people who are most popular, but... Mm but they're doing stuff right. You know. They're, 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 they're speaking their truth, uh-huh. which, which resonates with other people. You know, when I was uh, involved, when there used to be record companies, uh-huh. um, the uh, uh, record executives thought that really they were just using the artists' as tools. They were making it happen. I guess everybody has to think that they 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 uh, um, they thought that you know with the right promotion, I can I can really make this into a hit. Mm-hmm. They couldn't, mm. or everything they touched would have been a hit. And there's nobody who had everything that was a hit. Right. Um, you. I remember the Boston Sound, the Bostown Sound, mm. died a terrible death. There was one band that did. Well, mm-hmm. and then they figured, oh, this is it, all the Boston bands. No, didn't work. Mm. They put millions into that.
0: Mm. Do you think there is such thing as musical genius? Or is it? Uh, probably. Well, you wrote a song with someone like George Harrison, mm-hmm. right? It's amazing to, to look at that period of time that the Beatles created songs from, what, 65 to 73. It's uh-huh. only about eight years. Yeah. And it's just a staggering amount of great music. Yeah. Four, you know, three and a half or four geniuses that somehow found each other, or is it just right people at the right time, writing the
1: right things? Well, I tend more towards the genius thing, except that genius makes it sound too easy. Right. Uh, um, they, uh, these guys were very practiced musicians. Right, these guys really were pros. I mean, they were pros uh, uh, when "I Want to Hold Your Hand" came out. Right, they, because they, they, uh, you know, the the bad gigs that you do, they're like these things that polish gems. Mm-hmm. You know, they they tumble around in a rough thing and they come out shiny.
0: They're was it five hours a night in Hamburg
1: yeah yeah now not everybody who did five hours a night in Hamburg came <laughs> out to be the Beatles so yeah. there must have been some genius there but in addition to the genius um, th- there was there was superb musicianship
0: yeah yeah what was working with George
1: like I mean we we were at a, a a Thanksgiving Day party at the home of uh, a friend of both of ours, and it was just his family and uh, George and me. Mm. And George and I are both guitar junkies, and mm-hmm. the only guitar there was a, a an entry-level gut string guitar. Mm-hmm. So we passed it back and forth. And... Before we knew it, we'd written a song. We were not trying to write a song. Right, well, that's sometimes the best it, song's. It just out. came out, so that was that. Pick up your hands, you must stand and deliver. My stomach's empty, my clothes are all torn. Open your hearts to the joys of the giver. Only your pockets are terribly worn. This is a hold-up, no way to mistake it. We're men of violence, so don't fool around. Have money, we're going to take it. You try and stop us, you'll end underground.
0: I mean, the sheer amount of experience that you've had should be in about five memoirs at this point. <laughs>
1: you know? I was a very lucky and continue to be a very lucky person. There's no doubt about
0: it. But I think what is amazing is that I think you appreciate where you've been, but also are always looking forward to the next thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know you're not looking back really no you know
1: no I, I I've forgotten a lot of stuff yeah one of the great things about working with butch is that he remembers stuff that I had no idea happened until he told me I'd forgotten all about it
0: but there's a song uh that you found for Linda Ronstadt uh-huh. called a long long time that you know her music is is one of the things that i grew up with my mom had her cassettes on loop in the car every day mm-hmm. you know do you feel like your sense of um your musical ear was a unique gift that you had that you were able to give to others no <laughs>
1: <laughs> i you know there were a couple of guys uh uh one named Paul Siebel, who wrote... uh, His best-known tune is uh, Louise. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And the other was uh, Gary White. And uh, Gary White and I and Jerry Jeff Walker all lived in the same little building on Sullivan Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was perfectly obvious to anybody who really listened that Gary was a tremendous songwriter, and Mm -hmm. so was Paul Siebel. And so uh, uh, Linda had never heard them. She was in town. And I... Dragged her, dragged them, and we all went up to Gary White's apartment, and they played songs at her. And her next album was uh, mostly their songs. Mm. Uh, and th- and that same night, she took a, a cab ride with Jerry Jeff. She, she- this is in her autobiography. Mm. Uh, back up t- north to her hotel, and he told her about the uh, the, the McGarrigle sisters' song um, uh, "Heart Like a Wheel." Mm. And that's her favorite. Mm-hmm. But the, the the she was always over the top about my bringing her those songs. You mm. know, um, I really brought her those songwriters. <laughs> right. And uh, and they they sang the songs to her, and I just sat there and played guitar. Um,
0: Do you ever have the fear that you would lose your ability to play and sing, like some folks, like Linda, have experienced? Some people. They can't almost give that gift anymore, and it's heartbreaking to
1: watch. Linda was relieved when she found out that she had Parkinson's, although I understand it isn't really Parkinson's. It's another disease that's very closely related to it. Because she was having trouble singing. She couldn't understand it. Mm. So, so when she had an explanation of why she couldn't control her muscles anymore, it was a relief to her. Mm. Um, I've lost... Things that I don't know that I can ever get back. Uh, um, my speed—I used to play very fast mm-hmm. on the guitar, and I just can't do it anymore. But I sing a lot better, mm-hmm. <laughs> so 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 things. So I'm getting along. I you know the you get old and 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 you you lose stuff, and I have a I have a tremor that interferes with my guitar playing. Mm. But I can. There's some things I have no problem doing mm. on the guitar, and my singing's much better. And I, and I grew to love singing. You know, it used to be something I did in between guitar solos. Right. And uh, nowadays, uh, I, I I learned an awful lot from uh, uh, Phoebe Snow, who was a good friend, mm-hmm. and she really helped me quite a bit as far as singing goes. But I I didn't I didn't really practice it till I stopped performing. Mm. And, and then I started messing around with it, and and I, I you know it helped. So you step away
0: from music after you're burned out, and you dive head first into violin making.
1: Well, my aim was not to be a, a violin maker, really. What fascinated me was how someone could pick up a, a violin and without referencing to the label because they're frequently wrong. Right would look at the outside of it and tell you when and where it was made and sometimes by whom. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn how to do that. So the first step was to learn how to make them, you know, how they're made. So, and, and that way you learn the different methods of making, which you can observe on, uh, on violins, which can give you a clue about the period it was made or the country it was made in mm. or the region, you know. But why that, why that part of music making? Why
0: not make guitars?
1: Well, guitar is a wheelbarrow next to a violin that's a rocket ship. Okay. Why? I don't know. It is. You know, the violin has uh, some. Is, is a much more complex instrument. But you're a guitar nerd. You never played the violin, right? No, I do. I used to play violin. Okay. I used to. We, three of us, we do triple fiddle tunes. Okay. The only reason I don't still do them is that... Uh, um, Mark Cosgrove, who's the brilliant guitar player and mandolin player in the band, doesn't want to learn to play mandolin, and he's he adds so much mm. that I I figure hell, okay, so I won't. I I only like to play fiddle when if I could hide behind two other fiddlers. Mm. <laughs> so he doesn't want to play fiddle. I'm with him. What makes
0: a great violin sound better than a cheap violin?
1: Usually, it's the player. <laughs> You know, the whole thing is upside down. The great violin should be the, in the hands of the beginners because they're much easier to get a beautiful sound out of. Mm. And the great players can, can make a cigar box sound heavenly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's why I always, when, when parents, you know, come to our shows and they're like, I'm thinking of getting my young boy a, a guitar for his birthday. He's eight or something, you know. Should I get him just a cheap, you know, Yamaha guitar center? I was like, no, because... A crappy-sounding instrument
1: is very frustrating to play. Try and get them the best one that you can afford in yeah. current circumstances. You know, I have a violin store, and one of the things that uh, I think is very important that many violin teachers forget about mm-hmm. is that it has to be about the music. Right. And uh, they they concentrate on technique to the point where it's like juggling. You know, put this finger here and do it this way. And, you know, that's, that's important stuff. It, it, it'll help you be good. But it's just as important to spend a lot of time listening to, to music you love, mm. if not more important. Because if you hear something played on the instrument, cello, violin, guitar, whatever it is, it, you'll want to make that sound. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you won't want to make that sound. Right. And you won't stick with it. My dad went on the drive here I told him <clears throat>
0: I was gonna talk to you, he goes, Tell him that I was his roadie at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois in the seventies for a show. <laughs> and then I saw him years later crossing the street as I was mowing the lawn, like with a violin case in his hand. <laughs> I don't know I don't know why I told you that, but he remembers seeing you around Chicago as you uh-huh. were learning. I think at the was at the
1: Kenneth Warren School of Violin Making. Mm-hmm. It's when I started there. It was yeah. called that. The, the time I graduated it was called the Chicago School of Violin Making. Yeah. yeah,
0: I mean there were places in my hometown in Evanston that my dad talks about, where he would see Muddy Waters mm-hmm. just sort of standing on the rug and people and the college kids eating lunch and watching him in the afternoon, and seeing folks like Bonnie Raitt and you and my dad would carry your guitar in and you would play and then you you know go on about your day but it sticks in their brain you know
1: well you know the thing about all that is um people uh will talk to a, a, a musician they like in in awe and amazement mm-hmm. and really it's just what they do right What do you do? You work in a factory? Okay, this is what I do. (laughs) Right. I do it every day. People ask me, don't you get nervous? Yeah. Why should I be nervous? (laughs) Yeah, it's my job. (laughs) It's it's what I do, yeah.
0: Yeah. What was playing with Doc Watson like?
1: Oh, it was was a great deal of fun. He was just a fantastic player. And I worked out harmonies to some of the fiddle tunes he recorded, so we would do those.
0: Some of his stuff feels like he's... His stuff and uh, Ralph Stanley, when I listen to him, there's this spooky, spiritual channeling that's coming from their music that transcends folk music, bluegrass, whatever you Ralph call it. Ralph
1: Stanley was so soulful. Yeah. Yeah, he was fantastic.
0: I mean, it makes your hair stand up, yeah, you know, yeah, listening yeah. to him. You know, yeah. I mean, that's an, it's an amazing thing, I think, when music can transcend age and time and place, you know. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. Is it your hope that young folks can rediscover this music?
1: I never thought about it.
0: <laughs> well, if you like it, you hope you got to hope that someone else will like it. Why? <laughs> yeah, if you like it, it's
1: enough, probably. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, you know, that... that I think everyone in the band we play for ourselves right. and each other. Right. The audience has something to do with it, but I've never figured out exactly what or how. So <laughs> like it's, it's it would be the same feeling if you were in an empty room. Playing no, guys. it wouldn't be. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. The audience does definitely have something to do with it, but mm. not necessarily. I mean, you can. I mean, five of us could be in a in a room without an audience and playing our our butts off and, and really getting inspired. But uh, uh, with an audience, you might get higher. I don't know. You know, the the audience does something. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what. And I I never feel like I'm especially playing for them. That's interesting. I think, well, like you said, when you're deep in
0: a guitar solo, right? It's almost like you're not fully there. You know, you're on a separate plane. Yeah. They happen to be watching you lifting out of your being, Mm -hmm. which is something that most of us cannot do mm-hmm. when you are creating a violin is there a moment where you lift out of yourself?
1: My thing is identification mm. and yes, there are times when I'm on and times when I'm cold yeah you know there there are times when when I'm really good and I'm hitting it and I and it feels great mm. you know I'll be visiting a colleague and He'll have some mysteries, and maybe, maybe I'm spotting what they are, and uh, uh, and then there are other times when they're really obvious things, and they go right by me. What can I say? You know, it's, it's you get hot and cold.
0: Let's say that you have the ability to throw the David Bromberg Music Festival. Okay, money is no object. Where in the world would you throw it? And who would the first five people, dead or alive, be that you would book?
1: I, there actually was such a festival, but I didn't have anything to do with throwing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a little bit to do with some of the musicians. Um, What's your favorite venue in the whole world? Oh, my favorite venue is the uh, Stone Mountain Art Center uh, in uh, Maine. On Brownsfield,
0: a- Maine. Brownsfield, Maine. I've been wanting to play there again. We played once, and it was amazing.
1: Yeah, but we all want to play there for the same reason. <laughs> That dressing room is incredible, and they treat you so well. And they bake you a cake. And they bake you a cake, and the, if you need emergency or vitamins, it's on the wall. There are picks, and oh, it's fantastic. It's the only place
0: I've ever been that had my same pickup as a backup in case mine went out in the show. You
1: know why all this exists? Because the woman who runs it and is the cook used to be uh, an Irish uh, folk singer. And she was on the circuit. And so she built it with her... She made it her ideal. And, and she nailed it. Okay, humor me.
0: You can bring five artists, dead or alive, to Brownsfield, Maine, to join you on an evening no one will ever forget. Who would those people be?
1: Oh, Mac Rebenack, you know, Dr. John, Bob uh, Bob Dylan, um, Uh, and the Beatles, and that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Sign me up. Yeah.
0: Do you think that you, maybe not, uh, for whatever reason, finding that same level of hero worship fame as someone like Bob Dylan is a gift, or do you imagine what your life would be like if something had happened to you like that?
1: Um, I actually have imagined uh, that because... Uh, I had some close encounters of the third kind. Um, there's only so much patting myself on the back I can do. Uh, uh, there <laughs> that's, was, why, that's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, there was uh, uh, a very famous uh, musician who was auditioning guitar players in New York, and mm-hmm. I played with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he chose a, a friend of mine. Uh, and and had great success, and years later I was in a restaurant and the drummer called me over and he said, you know, so-and-so told me, he said he really wanted to get you, but he didn't want to have Dylan's guitar player. Mm. Now, if I'd been with this guy, Mm -hmm. I'd be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why? Because um, it's a a dangerous life, you Mm. know, uh, especially in those days. Because uh, drugs were everywhere and... This is the 70s? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, the arena-type shows. It's yeah. got to be...
1: Yeah.
0: I, I got to feel that when you're on that level and then you have to go back to regular life after the tour's over, it's got to be just a mindfuck.
1: Well, uh, if you are the person at the microphone... right. Uh, uh, talking relating to the crowd, uh, or not just singing harmonies, you have to be larger than life. Mm. That's that's part of your job. Mm-hmm. But when you get off the stage, it's, it, it, it's fucking obnoxious if you're larger than life. <laughs> yeah. and, and you have to remember to be a human.
0: Right. Yeah. How long were you Dylan's guitar player? I wasn't really his guitar yeah, look, why player. Did, but why did he say that? It's like I was it...
1: on his records a lot at that time. Right. Which and, records? Um, uh, Self portrait, uh, New Morning, and the one that came after that—that that I think was just called Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And then years later, I did some production for him, but that it, that hadn't happened yet. So,
0: but it's it's interesting how I think people create these mythological pedestals to put people on, right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, Dylan is a working songwriter performer. Like, oh like many of us, he, works and he like mad. never stops. Right. Nope. But I think there's this uh, canonization of some of these people, you know, where someone like you, I think, who has bridged so many genres and written so many types of songs, found so many songs and brought them into the light, I think deserves some more of that spotlight in my mind.
1: Yeah, maybe uh, uh, maybe so, but uh, maybe I should be grateful that I didn't get it. That that stuff is difficult. I yeah. uh, I, I did. Uh, I was very lucky uh, to be asked to uh, do some production, produce some tunes uh, with with Bob, and we were in a motel on the outskirts of Los Angeles, and there was a uh, uh, we'd work, and then we'd go to uh, the next building over from the motel was a great deli. Mm-hmm. We could never get from the motel to the deli without three to five people stopping him and telling him how they changed his life, and and that's a that's difficult stuff to bear. Right. In addition, how long do you think you could last uh, having people talk to your name and lights and not to you? Mm. Yeah, and and telling you that you were the greatest things since sliced bread, and and you, really nobody is, you know. Right. Uh, it, it, how long do you think you could last? You know, I've I've seen people who I know and like, uh, you know, talk about the little people, uh, and you you know, I, I that's not very attractive. Yeah. Uh, um, but I understand why they do it because they've been, yeah, they've been lifted up by everybody. You have to begin to believe that's who you are. Mm-hmm.
0: That's what I think. You know. So I
1: might be very lucky.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I think you do get to do what you love, right? Mm-hmm. And you've had a multifaceted life. There's a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that I read the other day. That for some reason it really reminded me of. Uh, your new record. It's called The Arrow and the Song. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read this, and then I want you to think about the first thing that comes to your brain. (laughs) Just bear with me. The Arrow and the Song. I shot an arrow into the air. It fell to earth. I knew not where. For so swiftly it flew, the sight could not follow it in its flight. I breathed the song into the air. It fell to earth. I knew not where. For who has sight so keen and strong That it can follow the flight of song? Long, long afterward, in an oak I found the arrow still unbroke And the song from the beginning to end I found again in the heart of a friend. Come on and put your arms around me Like a circle
1: around the sun Gonna love you, Mama, like your easy rider right done. If you don't believe I love you, babe. Look what a fool I've been. If you don't believe I'm second dad's whole time. Steal there's something about
0: the mystery that I think it, it was in this conversation we had where you don't know, sort of, of maybe where it. the songs are coming from and where you're going. And, and it's okay. where the
1: songs are going. Right. And what and how they're received. I uh, I did some production with uh, uh, a very talented woman, and um, one of the songs that she wrote she will never release on a record, and it may be it may be one of the best that she wrote. It, it's a it's a song. Uh, what's a girl to do? Talking about a a, a, a young pregnant girl, mm. and um, she's. She, I talked to her about it because I thought it was great. Who's we, the artist? Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, she said, "I, I don't really like the idea of abortion. I'm not recommending abortion, but what's someone to do? You mm-hmm. know. And I'm just afraid that if I record it, it'll be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And I told her I can guarantee it'll be misunderstood." Mm. I can also guarantee that every other song you write will be misunderstood. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. So, but uh, I, I kind of understand this was a little too much for her to have out there, mm-hmm. because it was a very sympathetic song mm-hmm. of the dilemma of a of a pregnant girl, mm. and it really let, uh, led inexorably to the conclusion: like you have to abort this child.
0: Mm. That's powerful.
1: Yeah, it was a great song.
0: When they write your obituary. In the New York Times, what do you want the first paragraph to say, if you could have your way?
1: Okay. We, uh, my wife and I were interviewed by a writer from the Times not so long ago. Uh-huh. And my wife is an artist, and uh, she was showing the, uh, uh, the writer, who was a delightful woman, uh, some funerary urns that she made, uh-huh. including her own, which said on it, "Does this make my ashes look big?" <laughs> I, I, my wife's pretty funny. Yeah, and and so uh, the uh, the woman said, "Well, how does David want to be uh, uh, buried?" Said, she said, "I don't know, David. How do you want to be buried?" I said, "Surprise me." <laughs> That's good. That's my answer to your question. (laughs) Surprise me. How long have you and your wife been together? Um, Well, we were married in 1970. No, I'm sorry. We were married in 1980. So, 79, 80. 79, actually. So it's, what, 40 years? I mean, for a traveling musician...
0: That's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Actually, for anybody, it's amazing. Yeah. It, it ain't Especially easy. for a traveling man. It's, it, it's very easy, but it ain't easy. How'd you guys meet? <laughs> oh, at a concert. How else? Yeah. The, the big issue in our uh, marriage, the, 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 the heavy-duty day was not so much the day when we exchanged our vows. It was the days when we, the day that we combined our record collections.
0: Mm-hmm. That was a big deal. Did you have enough space? Yeah. <laughs> if there was one record that I could put on when I get home, that I would learn from, but also maybe be inspired by, that you would want me to hear, what record would that be?
1: Well, there's a couple of none such records I really like. Uh, one of them is of a group called the Penny Whistlers. Mm. And the Penny Whistlers were uh, six or seven women from the Bronx, and they sang music uh, from Eastern Europe mm-hmm. in the language they were written in. And, and, and there's some some beautiful things which introduced me to that whole music, mm. and uh, uh, it's fascinating stuff. Mm. Um, so I probably would have started with the Penny Whistlers and then gone to the Bulgarian State Orchestra recordings with a chorus.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, um, And then uh, there's another record called The Real Bahamas that was recorded, actually field recorded, by two friends of mine. Peter Siegel and uh, Jody Stecker Mm. went down to the Bahamas and recorded some fantastic music. Mm.
0: Is there any world music that you would want to start playing that you've never tried before, from a certain region.
1: I don't know. It has it. It, it hasn't hit me yet. I mean, I, I play a little bit of Irish music, and I have for many, many years, but very little, and not very Irish. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, um, that music is uh, present in American fiddle music. You know mm-hmm. that. That's the 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 the, the uh, dictionary of tunes of mm. Scotch and Irish. Mm-hmm. Uh, But there's something interesting about the American version of them and the Canadian version. Mm. We both had the same groups of people Mm -hmm. uh, and the same fiddling that our fiddle music tradition came out of. Mm -hmm. And they sound completely different. Mm. And the difference, I'm convinced, although, you know, maybe people would not see it the way I do, but... Is the presence of African Americans in the United States that mm. that made the music completely different? The the stories of uh, uh, the slaves in colonial America always talks about them playing fiddle and the, and the banjo. You know, is an African instrument. Yeah, but the fiddle is. It, yeah. You know, most of the great blues guitar players played fiddle before they played guitar. Mm. Big Bill Broonzy. Uh, Lonnie Johnson, mm-hmm. who also recorded uh, uh, on fiddle, most of them. Well, the first instrument was always the the diddly bow, mm. which is a wire from the top of the house that you. Right.
0: Make. Yeah, there's a, an amazing uh, folklorist and uh, you know banjo guitar player, interpreter, singer, uh, Dom Flemons. I don't know if you. Well, heard I know Dom. Player. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> his episode in here was so long we had to do it in two episodes because he's uh-huh. he's an historian, you know, mm-hmm. but his whole uh, album black cowboys tells us about this history that's sort of gone you know into the ether and a lot of the you know the african-american settlers in the west were creating music and culture and were also these mythical sort of figures that we don't think of as black we think of as these strong jawed
1: white guys with cowboy hats
0: and no. Gene Autry and stuff, but there was this whole yeah. black presence in the West that has Absolutely. been forgotten.
1: And there were a lot of black country musicians, uh, uh, black fiddlers, country fiddlers. Yeah. And even the blues players, uh, I, I've just been reading um, Alan Lomax's book. The The Lomax's father and son mm. did uh, the in-depth research uh, on American folk music, especially throughout Mississippi. Right. And... Um, they discovered that all the blues singers they ran, uh, ran into also knew country uh, uh, stuff. Right. As a matter of fact, uh, they wrote down the, the albums that they saw in every juke joint. Mm. And then if they found a blues singer at his home, they wanted to look at which 78s he had, and mm. they wrote down. And uh, in all of these juke joints, they they would always find... Um, Woody Herman and Roy Rogers. Mm. And when they looked uh, at uh, Muddy Waters' collection, McKinley Morganfield at the time mm-hmm. on Stovall's Plantation, yeah, he had those two. Mm-hmm. That's what was listened to. Yeah. yeah, it was. And, and the other thing is I, I was very privileged to uh, uh, early in my career produce a record of, of Johnny Shines mm. uh, who... Traveled with uh, uh, Robert Johnson as much or more than anybody else, mm. and um, I suspect that all the blues people hated that record because I produced him the way I would produce myself. You know, I used mm. I used backup singers, I used horns, I used mm-hmm. keyboards, I used everything. Right. He loved it because I, it was the only record he'd done where he wasn't made to sit on a bale of hay with a red bandana around his neck. Right. So he really liked it. He said so in a couple of interviews, uh, at least two that I saw. Um, Anyhow, he told me that Robert Johnson was just as likely to sing a Bing Crosby tune as he was a blues, Mm. because he was a professional musician, and he had to sing what his audience wanted to hear, and what Mm -hmm. they wanted to hear was
0: what was on the radio. Mm -hmm. I was listening to some Nina Simone the other night, Uh her covering a Beatles song. Uh Uh-huh. And I I remember that part in that documentary where she was talking about, you know, that job she had in Coney Island where she had to play five hours a night by herself. Mm -hmm. Every song that people would ask, whatever was on the radio, Mm -hmm. and she had to learn it almost on the spot, Mm -hmm. you know, and it sort of seeped into her bloodstream. Yeah. And then once she became a performer in her own right, she brought it back into this crazy new version and it was it's so powerful some of her covers you know and it's not you know sort of a cheap money grab it's like her really interpreting and bringing you know here comes the sun in a way that almost George Harrison would never have imagined it to be played
1: I I suspect though that Robert Johnson had to be as close to the what was played on the radio as he could for his audience I suspect I don't know for sure Mm -hmm. Um, Johnny Shine said that uh, he and uh, Robert would be at a cafe somewhere and there'd be a new tune on the radio and they'd be talking while it was being played and then later on that day he'd be singing every word of the song and every note. So.
0: What do you call that, an autodidact? Or when you can...
1: An autodidact is a self-taught musician yeah. and I don't know that he was an autodidact.
0: All right. What do you call that when someone can learn a song on the spot? Elton John is, was like that. Oh, yeah? As a kid. I just finished his autobiography. He, uh-huh. he heard a song once and he could uh-huh. play it by memory uh-huh. 10 minutes later. That would be fun to be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I can do that nope. at all. Me neither. <laughs> what song would you like to play?
1: Oh, um,. The most recent thing that I've written, great, which is a blues, and it sounds like an old one in, in a lot of ways, even though there's some modern stuff in it. There's a verse um, that I've always loved uh, that turns up in various blues, but it, it's always an orphan verse. There's right. no verses in front or behind it that, that relate to it. Mm. So I took it and I made a whole song uh, from it.
0: Great. What's it called?
1: Uh, Buddy Brown's Blues.
0: Buddy Brown's Blues.
1: I'm getting up soon in the morning, (laughs) and I'm going to do just like Buddy Brown. (laughs) Yeah, I'm getting up soon in the morning. I'm gonna do just like Buddy Brown Yeah, I'm gonna eat my breakfast And then lay right back down You know, Buddy Brown got a rooster When it crows, it jumps and hops Butter Brown got a rooster When it crows, it struts and hops Now that rooster drives Buddy's tractor And brings in all his crops Yeah, Butter Brown got a cute puppy Man, that thing could bring a smile to a stone Buddy Brown got a cute little puppy So cute could bring a smile to a stone That puppy sweet talks all the women So Buddy never sleeps alone A mule. Oh, let me tell you what that mule can do. <laughs> yeah, Butter Brown got this old mule. Mm, let me tell you what that mule can do. That mule can sure enough whistle and dance the macarena too. <laughs> These times are hard Out in the country and In the town These times are real hard If you live in the country Or in the town Unless you Win the lottery Or your name Is Buddy Brown
0: What's that guitar you're playing there?
1: It's a Martin out of the custom shop. It's on the body style that uh, uh, I always use. Uh, it's a copy, as every Martin quadruple o or M model, is a copy of a guitar that Matty Umanoff made for me in the 60s. Wow. Buddy Brown's blues. Yep. This is
0: going to be the new record live at the Hampton Inn.
1: <laughs> Except this, this isn't the Hampton Inn. What is this? This
0: is a Holiday Okay, great. <laughs> Live at the Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> I'm really glad we could, uh, we could talk, man. This is really special. Thank you for talking to me. You're very welcome.
1: It was fun.
0: Well, there he goes now. Mr. David Bromberg, everybody. You can go to davidbromberg.net for his music. His newest record is called Big Road off Red House Records. You found me recording and editing this in the only air-conditioned room in our house. Uh, it is very, very hot. I hope everybody is keeping cool. I did a little trip to uh, Utah with my wife last week, and we stayed in St. George, which is a cool little town, on our way back. It was 115 degrees at dinner time, and we drove past Las Vegas. There was a fire in the hills. It looked like a mushroom cloud. I was a little bit afraid. It was 120 degrees Something is very wrong here. I hope we make enough music to make it all better in the end. Make sure you register to vote, folks. We are 70-plus days away from the election, and uh, I know musicians are supposed to stay in their lane, supposedly, but I refuse to stay in mine, okay? Please register to vote and donate to your favorite bands. We're out of work, and we will be coming to you with a brand-new Suede Home Fest, Dust Bowl Revival's Virtual Music Fest, on our Facebook page in September, so look out for that. The show on the road is recorded, written, and edited by me, Zach Lupiton, and you can find it on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Leave us a review on iTunes. I hope to see you on the trail very soon. See you in two weeks.